Because today I'm going to tell you a story. We live in a world full of stories. The world has always been full of stories. Um, There's a writer I read this morning. He once said, there have been great societies that did not use the wheel, but there have been no societies that did not tell stories. Stories, um, they captivate us. They move us. Uh, they help us picture what life is about. They help us analyse the biggest question. Our world has always been driven by stories. They used to be passed on by word of mouth from generation to generation. Um, eventually written down today. You can find them on uh, Netflix, Disney+, Plus, um, Spotify. Many, many ways we tell stories. And whilst I don't have time uh, to really go into it more here, every story that is told has echoes of the greatest story. The Bible tells us this, that human hearts are seeking to make sense of the world. They're thinking about meaning and purpose, and they can't help but tell stories. Stories to try and grapple with those questions, but stories which can't help but point towards God's story. Just think of the worldwide obsession with superheroes. Stories of rescue. Or Harry Potter, probably the most popular book series of the last 30 years, full of illusions and echoes. A story framed by two acts of sacrificial love with a story of a saviour hero smack bang in the middle. So let me tell you your story, your children's story, the story of the world, uh, as we keep looking at this question of what it means to be human. It's God's story. Uh, He's the author. The world is his story. We are his characters. The first words of the book of Genesis. We looked at it last week. In the beginning, God. It's God's story. He's the author. And the Bible uh, itself, we've been looking at this in January um, on our Wednesday nights. The Bible is a big book full of many topics, uh, different genres. It's kind of pretty poetic here at the start of Genesis. Different styles. It spans centuries, written by various authors, looking at different subjects. Uh, And yet it is one grand story with one central message, which is all about Uh, What our our Trinitarian God, Father, Son and Spirit planned in eternity and executed here on earth. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible story is first and foremost about this God. It's his story. It's focused on his name. It's focused on his glory. It's focused on how he has graciously chosen to share himself with us. Overflowing from a love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit into a love for us, for humanity. He didn't need to, but he chose to create us and love us. We saw that last week. Now, uh, there's a few ways we can outline the Bible's long and complex story, but we're going to focus on four sort of major plot points as we look particularly at this question of what it means to be made in God's image. So there's four big questions. Who are we? What went wrong? What's the solution? And where is history going? So firstly, act one in our story, who are we? Well, part of this was our focus last week. If you weren't here, here's your brief synopsis. We were created by a God who has always existed in a perfect relationship, Father, Son and Spirit. And we were created as the pinnacle of the creation story. Of creation, only humans were made in God's image. Our world tells us, we saw it in the video there, to form our own identity. And from that, we will find our value. It's a really fragile offer. And yet here in the Bible, we're told that all humanity has has value, inherent value, because they were made by God. We see creation. And in verse 26, the author really slows down and he immediately changes gear. The story changes from a third person. So God created and God said, 
to the third person, the first person, sorry, plural. Then God said, let us. It's for glimpses of the Trinity here, the first glimpses. All of the Trinity talked together and they acted. And what they did was they created humanity. Verse 26, they said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And then in verse 27, we get the first poetry in the Bible. Three lines with the emphasis three times on the word created. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is the high point of God's creation. There's a commentator, a guy called R. Kent Hughes. Uh, he described it like this. Though you could travel a hundred times the speed of light, past countless yellow-orange stars to the edge of the galaxy and swoop down to the fiery glow located a few hundred light years below the plane of the Milky Way, though you could slow to examine the host of hot young stars luminous among the gas and the dust, though you could observe close up the protostars poised to burst forth from their dusty cocoons, though you could witness a star's birth, in all your journeys, you would never see anything equal to the birth and wonder of a human being. For a tiny baby girl or boy is the apex of God's creation. He continues, the greatest wonder of all this is that the child is created in the image of God. The child once was not, now as a created soul, he or she is eternal. He or she will exist forever. When the stars of the universe fade away, that soul will live. Just take a breath, take that in. What God is saying here, what we can see here, we alone made in God's image. What value that gives us, what dignity that gives us. How it then calls us to treat everyone else around us with real worth and value and dignity. All life matters. Your life matters. Value and worth not based on your economic output, not based on your performance, any standard or uh, the skills that you bring. It's based on who what God says about you. It's not necessarily based on your faith even. It's not based on your faith in the God of the Bible or any other. The fact we're made in God's image remains even after the fall we see. It's not based on the, the health of your body, the background of your family. It's not based on your gender or your race. We are all made in God's image. This is an inherently Christian value. We kind of swim in these waters, so we, we kind of think this is just a normal value, but it's really not. It's a Christian value that man and woman is equal and has value. Human rights fundamentally come from Christianity. Because without this view of all being made equal in God's image, there is no basis for human rights. The Christian story is a good story, but it is actually the best story for our world. You can see this when you look at the stats about the Roman world where Jesus was born. I was reading about this earlier. Uh, in a pagan culture, worshipping idols, living with a different story. A story with distant gods who did not make man out of love. He did not make God, uh, man according to his own image. Here's a stat for you. At that time, tragically, there were 133 men to every 100 women. A baby girl had no value or worth in that culture. And so they were often killed. 
This isn't just an ancient issue. I don't know if you followed the COVID inquiries at all. Quotes from a man called Lord Sumpton. Controversial in the pandemic, he suggested some lives are less valuable than others. He based that on their capacity to contribute to society. If we concede that principle, it will have far-reaching consequences in society. We've seen it in many ways. As Christians, we need to be those who shout loudly for the dignity of all humanity from womb to tomb. The unborn child is made in the image of God like every other human being, knitted together in their mother's womb just as we are. It is tragic, incredibly sad, but in our society, unborn children are killed in vast numbers. Over 200,000 last year, legally killed. Every one of those was a precious person because they were made by God, infinitely valuable because they were made in his image. There's lots in the news at the moment around legislation around assisted suicide and euthanasia. Another issue to be aware of uh, for us as Christians to be praying about, to be thinking about. Now, Deciding to have an abortion or end life early can be an agonising decision. And many suffer with the guilt for the rest of their lives. The good news is our Lord is gracious and merciful and real forgiveness can be found in these situations. But the fact of the matter is, from womb to tomb, all are made in God's image. And as Christians, if we understand who we are, if we understand who others are, it will shape our view of everyone we come across. If we have this value firmly in our minds, it will shape how we care for the poor. How we speak up for the vulnerable in society. How we love all of those in our church, especially those we don't normally get along with. All of us are made in God's image. All of us are eternal beings. We all have inherent value. But what does it actually mean to be made in God's image? Here's a diagram to hopefully help us a little bit navigate our way through this series. We've been created. We saw that last week. We are not God. And today we're looking at this. We're human. We are in some way like God. Because at its most basic understanding, to be made in God's image and likeness means in some ways we are like him. It's like we share a family likeness. If you ever met my dad, he comes to church occasionally uh, here. Um, He not only looks quite a lot like me, he sounds like me. He has similar mannerisms to me and characteristics. Um, Caroline jokes that she basically knows exactly what I'm going to be like in 40, 50 years' time, um, which was helpful because uh, my dad's a great man. I like him a lot. <laughs> We're in some ways like God. We've been made to relate to him and to represent him. And images represent something, don't they? Um, if I uh, draw an image of a car, it's meant to show you what a car is like. Um, it should. I'm pretty atrocious at drawing, so it doesn't. Uh, Layla's got into the habit at the moment, my two-year-old, of asking me how to draw a lion at the moment. She comes up to me with a pen and a paper, and she says, Daddy Lion. Uh, This is what she gets. (laughs) Genuinely, I drew that. Um, I wasn't trying to scare her. I I thought that's what a lion looks like. Uh, It's pretty awful. It's pretty harrowing. I think you'll find Caroline described it as one of the most harrowing images she's ever seen. Um, I think that's fair. I'm going to turn that off, otherwise we're just going to get distracted by that. But the point of that is God draws us accurately. God made all of us with our differences and our intricacies in his image to represent him in the world and to live in ways which bring him glory. Knowing that these are the ones in which we'll truly find joy and flourish in life. Uh, A number of 
Uh, writers have found the image of a mirror to be really helpful here. It's what you can kind of see abstractly there in our series graphics. Uh, one of them wrote this, as a mirror reflects, so a man should reflect God. In man, God becomes visible to earth. Again, there's real dignity to this. This is what we were made to be. We're like mirrors. We're, we're mirrors which are, are meant to be tilted like that one at 45 degrees. We point upwards so that as God shines on it, we, he bounces off the mirror and out into the world. We're made to image God, to reflect him in how we live, to glorify him, to magnify him. And we do that as we're like him. We've been made loving like God. That's one of the ways we image him is in this. We've seen God in his very essence, his love. We looked at that last week. He's always been giving and receiving love as part of a trinity. We've been made to love God. The, the way humanity can flourish most is when it loves God. The greatest joy and delight anyone can have in life is when we're loving God and worshipping him. We were made to love him and then overflow that love to others. We're at our most human when we're giving and receiving love. It's what Sai's going to look at uh, the next couple of weeks. We've been made creative like God. In verse 26, in what was read, we see mankind made in God's image so that they may rule. God delegates some of his authority to us. He's in charge, but he creates man and he delegates authority. In verse 28, it says he blessed them and called them to be fruitful and multiply and to fill and subdue the earth. You see, the earth God made was perfect, but it was not finished. He delegated firstly to Adam and then to us the role of filling and ruling and subduing the earth. It's a bit like when a toddler helps a parent cook. They're given a task, maybe allowed to stand on a stool. Um, you take their hand, you help them stir a pan. In some ways, we've been given that task to flourish and develop this world together with God. We see that as he calls Adam to name the animals later on in chapter two. God made them, but then he calls on Adam to partner with him in now naming them, using his intellect, his understanding to name the animals as Adam outworks his authority over them. We've been made like God loving, we've been made creative like God. And then we're going to see in a few weeks time, we are distinct people like God. God is one in three persons, Father, Son and Spirit. He has personality, different persons, distinct roles, but fully united or working to the same goal. And it's the same for humanity where people made male and female. Different, but all called to work towards the same goal and purpose, which is to give God glory and to point others towards him. We'll look at that in a few weeks' time. Then finally, we're people, uh, as we image God, who, who work and we rest like God. We work like God. Work is not something which comes after the fall. It may feel like it sometimes. But God worked, we see here. And he made and he created. And then he commissions Adam and Eve to do the same. And this flows to us, whether paid work or not. We're going to look at in a minute that there's a reason we find it hard now as a result of the fall. And then God rests which is really odd when you think about it. A God who has, is God. Why on earth would he need to rest? But he does, and this offers us a pattern for how we're to live. This is a, an unpacking what it means to be made in the image of God, to reflect him. But as I hint at there, the problem is we don't. And we get to act two. What went wrong? In Genesis 3, just for the next chapter, and if you're in the Red Bibles, you can flick there. 
I'll encourage you to read it later. In Genesis 3, Satan persuades Adam and Eve that their image, that their vision of the world was more beautiful than God's image. He deceives them and tempts them not just to be people who are in God's image, but to be truly like God, to be God themselves, knowing good and evil. In some senses, it's as if they flipped the mirror over and just looked at themselves. And we've been loving ourselves ever since. Now, of course, we've seen last few weeks, it's not necessarily a bad thing to value ourselves. It's a really good thing. But the problem is when we put ourselves at the centre of the story. We worship ourselves, we put our own needs above anyone else's, our own desires above all else. And we then get crippled by others. We're dominated by how people think about us. It's a sort of paralysing paradox. I think our culture knows this even more extremely right now. We carry around our pockets devices like this, our own personal mirrors. We invented the selfie in the last few years. Not, not we. That would have been incredible. Um, our society invented the selfie. And, and then you get these incredible images like this. See if you can spot her. Instead of looking at what we're experiencing, instead of delighting in the creation in front of us or the entertainment around us, we have to document it so we can share it with others for some reason. See her there, bottom left. The only one really living in the moment is the line. I tried to find an image I've seen earlier of basically everyone standing by the Grand Canyon, one of the most vast, wonderful things of God creation. Sit <coughs> there with a selfie, as if that makes it better. We've invented apps then to fuel this obsession. I have a real love-hate relationship with social media. It's part of my job (laughs) um, to help people connect their sport and their faith. And I've seen really the power of social media to help people do that in many ways. But I do struggle with the other side of apps like Instagram. I think we need to think about this and wrestle with this. It's, It's an app which really promotes the self as supreme. I think we, like Adam and Eve, are often deceived here. We give in to the claim, and I know I do, that the technology will connect us together. In some ways it does. But we ignore the reality that mainly you're just connecting with yourself. You're curating yourself. You're saying, this is what I look like. This is what I enjoy. This is my life. This is what I do. This is my identity. It's as if this sort of lure of social technology, social media, has trained half the world to daily say, look at my face. I'm here. I'm important. I matter. Can I ask you if you are on social media? I'm not saying it's a wrong thing to be on it. But how are you thinking about it and reflecting on it and your use of it? Why do you post what you do? What are you trying to tell the world and yourself about yourself? It's a question I'm trying to regularly ask myself. It's one we should ask each other as well if we're spending lots of time on social media. And the problem with this, and basically it just points to the wider problem. As a result of the fall, our love of ourselves, our dependence on other people's opinion of us. What's the problem with this? Well, apart from it denying God the worship he deserves, that's the biggest problem. I think it leads to an incredibly insecure identity. I don't need to say I think that. I know it does. Both the stats prove it, but also as we see it in culture and around us. If I'm constantly asking if I'm happy enough, if I'm good enough, if I'm doing enough, if I'm loved enough. I'm constantly asking others to affirm me in that. It's very insecure. It's very temperamental. 
just based on life and its waves. This story of self-worship affects all of our life. It, it fully affects us and all of the world's sin. We see it in Genesis 3. The, the world is cursed because of sin. And that's what sin is. It's putting ourselves in the middle and the centre of the story. It's cursed because uh, from Adam downwards. In Genesis 3, we sung about it a little bit. We talk about uh, creation's curse and then redemption. God curses creation. We see it groaning. We know this as we think about the world today. He curses our relationships, our love for each other. Man and woman at loggerheads. He curses our creativity, our work, making it painful and frustrating. It becomes hard to rest. And ultimately, the curse makes us mortal. From dust you are, and to dust you will return, God says. It's a bleak picture. Sin changed it all. In Adam, we are all sinners. I dwell here a little, because uh, I want us to get it, because I think we live in a, in a culture, and even a Christian culture, which doesn't want to tell this part of the story. I want to <coughs> skip this chapter. We want to live in Genesis 1, in the wonderful dignity and delight of having been created, made in God's image. We want to ignore the part where Adam and Eve, uh, like, uh, well, like Adam and Eve, we've rebelled against the one in whose image we're made because it's not that nice a bit of a story it feels a bit ludicrous though and we think we'd never skip that part of the story before we get to the end of any other film or story and it's really important we don't just move through the story we don't just stay stuck in the first act the first act is wonderful but it's not the end of the story it's not even the best part of the story it's essential for any of us as well teaching or parenting children to get this as well our culture wants to tell us the most important thing you can tell a child is they have worth and value and dignity, and they do. All of them and all of us are made in God's image. And yet we do them a disservice if we don't tell them the second part of the story and the third and the fourth part we're going to get to. Not just a disservice, it's not an act of love to just stay there. It's only half of the story. They need to know that they are in their DNA self-worshippers. They need to know they need to return to worshipping God. They need to know they can't do this themselves. I need to know this. You need to know this, that we need a rescuer. Unfortunately, that's act three. What's the solution? We preach Romans all last year. Here's Romans five. Uh, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. You see, God's story, it's a human story. So salvation comes from the perfect man, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life which none of us have lived. He died the death we deserve to die for trying to write God out of a story. Jesus comes, he lives the perfect human life as the perfect image of God. Hebrews 1, verse 3. I'm going to get it up because for some reason I deleted it from my transcript says this, Hebrews 1 verse 3, the sun, that's Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That's what Jesus is. It's like that moment in the film now when the music swells, the hero arrives, slows down and focuses on this new character. Friends, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know how to be fully human, Look at Jesus. How do we look at him? We read 
the scriptures, what God has revealed about himself. We, we meditate and dwell on his character. We turn up on a day like today and hear Jesus preach together in community. We study him in our small groups. We talk about him. We pray for his help to help us see more of Jesus. Because as we, as we gaze on Jesus, we look at him, we are transformed. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, Paul says this, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we gaze on him and see the glory of God, it begins to turn the mirror of our souls back towards him. Jesus is the perfect image of God. He is the model human. He took on our human limitations. His life was not a smooth life. It's amazing to dwell on. God himself became fully human. He lived all the faff of the human life. What's the faffiest thing you do? Think about it. I don't know. I don't really enjoy showering. <laughs> Get cold, a bit wet, smelly towel, buy shampoo. I just, I, I can't be bothered. I, I do shower. But... <laughs> Jesus would have washed. God himself would have washed. He would have got, he got tired. He slept. He had to grow up and learn how to live. Ask me after, if you want to hear about that? I just had somebody brilliant teach me the other day on that in Luke 2 when Jesus was taught in the temple. It's incredible to think about that. He had to eat and drink. He worked as a carpenter. He would have had to go to the toilet. He had to get himself from A to B, walking miles in his lifetime. This is God, by the way, I'm talking about. He lived a very normal life in many ways, like you and me. And yet he did not sin, we're told. Sin is not a necessary part of what it means to be human. Yet only Christ lives as a human and does not sin. I don't know when you're most prone to sin. For me, it's when I'm tired. Even in his tiredness, he did not sin. He didn't get impatient. He didn't speak unkind words. He didn't hold on to bitterness or anger whenever it was wronged him. He never lied or gossiped. He didn't complain. He didn't feel envy or jealousy. It's really hard to get our heads around this, I'm sure. I can't imagine a four-year-old Jesus not sinning when I look at my own. Yet we're told he was without sin. Harry would have coped when his brother chucked a solid book in his face. I do not know. But we know he did not sin. So look at Jesus. Gaze on him. Devote time to that. Carve time out to read about him in the Bible. Reveals to us who he is and what he's like. We've been looking at that on Wednesdays in January. Make it a priority daily to gaze on Jesus. Because the more we become like Jesus, the more we become like God. Jesus is our perfect example of what it means to be human. Yet following his example is not enough. It's not enough to overcome our sinful nature. We can't turn the mirror around by ourselves. We can't just be a bit more like Jesus. As we look at Jesus and his perfect life, I'm sure as I've described it there, we'll also see how far fall we short, fall short of perfectly imaging God. His life was not just an example for us. His death and the resurrection are how God achieves our salvation. And it's only if we put our trust in Jesus, put our trust in his death, 
when he paid the penalty for our sin, that he turns the mirror back around. We get to see God's glory again. We begin to slowly and often imperfectly reflect God. <coughs> this is what God is doing. If you put your trust in him, you've been confident of this. It's what the Spirit is doing. He's reminding you of who you truly are. He's nudging and pushing you and pointing you towards Jesus. He's making you again more like the perfect image of God. If you put your trust in him. Restores our true humanity. Gives us a fresh purpose there. Matthew 28, the end of Jesus' life. He rewords the call in Genesis to fill the earth and multiply. He calls us then to go into all the nations. To fill the earth and multiply with disciples of Jesus. Because people who are living out this story. Who have recognised their sin and have put their trust in Jesus. Are living life as they were truly made to be. As people who follow Jesus, our job now, Matthew tells us, to bring life to people as we share this story in our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighbourhoods, with our children. We have a purpose now, a real purpose. But as we close, that's not the end of the story. Where's history going? I mentioned at the start, we're eternal. The story continues forever. There's a destination we're all heading towards and it's eternity either with or without God. Jesus' resurrection rebooted the cursed earth and we're now on a trajectory towards the new heavens and the new earth. Amazingly, the story for the world is not a return to the Garden of Eden. We're not harking back to the garden. It's towards a garden city. A place where we'll be more human than we ever will be before there. This is the promise if you're trusting in Jesus. We'll have new bodies, raised body and soul. We'll have new work to do. We'll serve others. We'll serve the city. We'll worship God. We'll rest. And we'll do all this in the presence of the one who made us forever. Without sin. I can't get my head around that. So as we close, I'm going to take us to the end of the story. Revelation 21 and 22. Because this is the end of the story for all those who are in Jesus. It's not dependent on your performance, just on your trust in your creator. Maybe if you'd like, close your eyes if you're willing. Fix your eyes on the end of the story. Try and imagine, try and grasp it. That it cause you to praise and worship our creator God. To give you confidence to live this week with a secure identity and a clear purpose. If you're here and you currently don't trust in Jesus, you're so welcome. There's people every week here who just kind of look in and ask what's going on with this story. How do I make sense of these questions in life? If that's you, when you imagine this was true and think, do I want to be part of this story? We want to say this is the story. This is the only story in the world. Let me read Revelation 21, 22. As I said, if you're willing, maybe close your eyes, fix your eyes on the end of the story. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his name, his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let me pray. Father God, help us to see clearly the Lord Jesus. As we do that, may it cause us to recognise where we are not perfectly imaging you. And may it cause us to fling ourselves onto the only one who ever has. To delight in him and worship him. And become part of his story forever. Amen. We're going to sing. We're going to sing of the Lord Jesus, of the wonder and majesty and marvel of the Lord Jesus. Let's sing with voices loud of our Saviour.